turn to the book of Malachi. It's in the Old Testament. It's actually the, the last book of the Old Testament. So if you're using one of those hardback or paperback Bibles that uh, we used to use or that Moses used long ago, uh, uh, you can find it. It's right there before Matthew, right after Zechariah. And if you're using your phone or a tablet, I shouldn't have to school you on that. You probably already found it. So Malachi is another one of these minor prophets, one of these guys that um, the Lord uses to, to declare his message to the people belonging to God. Uh, Malachi uh, comes after, even in your Bible, comes after Zechariah. Uh, comes during a time where uh, life was pretty normal, just kind of average people belonging to God, normal life. In fact, um, they, they had already rebuilt the temple and the wall surrounding the temple. And so there was some security, some comfort in the lives of the people belonging to God. And so because of that, they began to form some average status quo habits that the Lord felt as if he needed to uh, talk to them about. And so he called out Malachi. Malachi's name means my messenger to go and share these words with the people of God. So think about that. About a hundred years after the, the, the exiles had been, uh, you know, removed from exile and brought back to Jerusalem, they'd been given the words from the Lord, also from the government that they were allowed to, as the people belonging to God, rebuild the temple. And so, uh, so they begin rebuilding it. And we read already through uh, one of the minor prophets that they had stopped building it over time and, and uh, started, to, you know, looking at their own interests and their own things to do. And then God had to reprimand them about that. Hey, I've freed you from captivity. I've given you instructions, uh, things to be about. And so please, uh, in response to me, for my glory, for my name's sake, rebuild the temple as I've direct, directed you to do. And then in that, at the end of that, we see that, that even, even God saying, hey, the temple is there and it's great that you've rebuilt it, but you're still in need of a Messiah. And as we talked about last week in the, in the prophet of Zechariah, Zechariah, we see in Zechariah 14, it's great that you have these things and you're going to use them for the glory of the Lord. These resources, we'll call them. It's great that you have this rebuilt temple, but you need to know that that's not going to satisfy or fulfill all your needs. Instead, you're in need of a Messiah, someone to come and rescue you, someone to come and redeem you, someone to come and fill uh, the emptiness that's in you. As, as the author of, uh, of Ecclesiastes says, we have this uh, longing for eternity in our heart that will only be uh, fixed or remedied with Jesus, with the Messiah. And so Zechariah ends, and we ended with him last week, saying uh, we have this hopeful anticipation that the Messiah has come, and that we see it all of prophecy fulfilled in Jesus, and we have this longing for his, his final return or his second coming so that we can see him in all his glory, and we can worship the things that right now we're worshiping unseen, that we're putting our faith and trust in and being obedient to. At some point, we're going to see it in all of glory, in all his glory, and be able to bask in that. And so we're longing, or we should be longing, for the coming Messiah. And then some time happens. Some time of security, some time of comfort. The church or the temple had been rebuilt. The walls surrounding offered security. And so the people belonging to God began to form some normal, average, everyday habits that most of us have. In the book of Malachi, there's these six disputes that happen. Uh, God says something, and then the people dispute with God and say, are you sure about this? And then God answers. So we see this six times in the book of Malachi. God says something, uh, like, like this morning we're going to talk about, God says, I, I have loved you, or I will always love you. And the people say, how have you loved us? And then God answers. 
you know, and so you see these six disputes. People want to argue with God. Maybe you've done this too. Maybe even this morning you're thinking already, yeah, we hear that the Lord loves us and we know that he does, but how does he do that? And so we begin to question in some way, not questioning God's uh, godness or his deity or his divineness, but just questioning kind of a simple, maybe childlike question. Okay, Lord, you say that you love us, but how do you love us? I think we all go through these moments in life. God, you say that you're not. One of the disputes is about this. God, you say that you're not about all these injustices that are happening throughout the world. Uh, you're not about these things, and yet you're, it seems as if you're allowing these things to happen. Uh, you know, things like world hunger, or slavery, or, uh, you know, a, a single uh, family, a single parent family, or uh, the need in the, the broken foster care system, or whatever the case may be, alcoholism, whatever the case may be, we're seeing these injustices play out in the world, and we think, if God is really against these why has he not done something about this? And the people belonging to God back, you know, three, 350 or 450 BC, they're asking these same questions. Uh, one of the questions, one of the disputes is about marriage and family. That you, you want us to be about these things and you've put these decrees and these covenants in place, yet our feelings are getting in the way, so how do we handle uh, this thing? Finances. I mean, here's the six disputes. Love, the love of God, uh, what that looks like, uh, spiritual and religious life, what going to the temple looks like, the people who represent God as priests or pastors or shepherds, what are they supposed to be about, people that are going to the temple, what do they look like. The third dispute is family and marriage struggles. I think that you may have seen that in your own family or marriage, or you see uh, neighbors of yours that are struggling with family stuff and marriage stuff. Uh, the injustices of the world is another dispute. Uh, another dispute. Number five is finances. What do we do with our money? Does it belong to us? Does it belong to the Lord? How much of it belongs to the Lord? Uh, those types of things. And then the sixth dispute is how do we continue to serve God while it seems like the people who are prospering are full of evil? Do we continue to serve God while all this evil continues on in the world? Do those sound like six things that we struggle with or deal with in today's world? I mean, Malachi is, is a prophet that he's, he's around about 400 years before Jesus, before Jesus comes upon this earth. So we're talking many, many, many years ago, and yet it seems as if the things that the people belonging to God were struggling with or questioning or asking were very similar things that we deal with today. And so in these disputes, God is trying to remind them of a couple of things. Number one, you have, you have become, um, you've, you've gained a habit of half-hearted worship. You're not giving me all of your life. Uh, you're only giving me a little bit or a portion of your life. Uh, Mark Dever says, Jesus is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. You can't have him just in bits and pieces of your life. He has to be Lord over your entire life. And so that's one of the major themes that we're, we're going to see in the book of Malachi. Is these these uh, habits that we've formed that lead into these half-hearted worship instances, worshiping God with our entire life, we have to break those habits in some way. And then another thing that we're going to see constantly throughout the book of Malachi is that God is about making his name famous. 
that the, that the entire world will hear about my name, that nation upon nation upon nation will know about the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, Yahweh. They will know about the Lord. And in that, my name will be made famous by the way that you handle your finances, by the way that you stay married, by the way that you handle your family stuff, by the way that you handle injustices in the world, by the way that you handle love, by the way that you handle these things, people will know and recognize my name and all of these things. So the people belonging to God have a huge task to fulfill. And the huge task to fulfill is representing the one that you belong to. You are owned by the Lord. He has bought you with a price. That price being the price of the life of his son. And so now you belong to the Lord. I don't know if you know Ted Williams. Uh, he was a pretty good baseball player back a long time ago. Uh, he, he did pretty good at hitting and uh, holds some records. And anyways, uh, Ted Williams uh, was a really prideful guy. In fact, uh, in fact, I don't know that he had a relationship with the Lord at all. Uh, his family wanted to, uh, to memorialize him in a way because they, uh, they wanted uh, his daughter says something like this. Uh, you know, people who have church and religion, uh, they, they understand uh, uh, mortality and immortality because they have the church stuff. We don't as a family have that so we want to immortalize or we want to make my dad live forever and so we're going to freeze his body with the hope that someday science will help us bring his body back to life. Okay, so Ted Williams, uh, this kind of prideful, uh, you know, greatest, I want to be the greatest hitter, greatest hitter in the world, wouldn't tip his hat, wouldn't, uh, you know, raise his hat to the crowd saying thank you. He would not do that finally at the end of his, at the end of his life. He's, uh, he's, he was, it was asked to come and speak at, uh, what's the name of that place that you like, Zach? What, what is it called? Fenway Park there in Boston. And a place that shall, shall not be named. It's like, uh, it's like heaven and then the other place, jail. Uh, anyways, uh, so, uh, so Ted Williams. Uh, they're asking him, hey, will you go to the All-Star Game? Will you uh, show up to this All-Star Game in 1999 and make your presence known? We would love to honor you there. And he said, no, I'm not going to be there. Hey, this company will pay you if you will wear their logo. They will pay you money so that you can go and represent them. Maybe people are thinking, maybe this incentive will help them there. And he says this, you're telling me that if I wear a logo of something, like it will gain recognition and that company will profit from it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And he says, okay, then I'll wear, I'll wear my son's logo, my son's company's logo, and I will go and represent my son so that he may profit from it. Now, Ted Williams, as wise as he is about the science of baseball, as wise as he is about uh, flying airplanes and, and whatever else he was about, as wise as he is, he was a, he's a great, a phenomenal, world-record-setting fly fisherman. I don't know if that's really important to you guys or not. But as great as he is in those, in those things, uh, he's, he's not full of godly wisdom, yet that profound statement of, if I wear this, you're telling me that my son will profit from it. And so we as followers of Jesus have something similar uh, with our lives, that we, in our obedience to the Lord, we are representing him as ambassadors wherever we are, in every aspect of our life, as if we're wearing his logo, which happens to be holy to the Lord, marked across us so that we may represent him so that he may gain notoriety or he may gain, uh, you know, uh, make, his name may be made famous as to speak so that he may receive, in church world we call it, he may receive all the glory because only he is worthy of that. So all that to say, the people belonging to God, they knew these things. They had been uh, removed from captivity. 
they're no longer exiles. In fact, God looks past their sin and said, though it was your sin that led you into exile, I will redeem you and bring you back out of exile, no longer a slave to those things, free you from that. Because of my grace, because of my love, I will, I will remove those things from you so that you can live in this, in this place. I'm giving you Jerusalem. I'm giving you the instructions to rebuild the temple. And in about a span of 100 years, they began forming these terrible, terrible habits. Habits that were causing them to gain fame for themselves instead of giving glory to the Father. Now, if it just took about 100 years for the people of God who had seen God and heard God speak and all these things, here we are 2,000 years removed from Jesus. Do you think that we've also formed some bad, some negative habits? Habits that are creating a culture where we receive the glory, where we receive the honor as people belonging to self instead of belonging to Jesus, not recognizing that he is Lord of all, instead of saying, hey, he's Lord of a little bit, maybe on Sunday, and so I'll give him that whenever it's convenient. But this moment, at this moment, this particular time belongs to me. Think about habits for a second. Positive habits... And negative habits are formed all the time. Positive habits are those good things like washing your hands or brushing your teeth. And they happen really in normal, average, daily lifetime. But there's no pressure. You know what I'm saying? Like you're trying to teach your kids to brush their teeth so that they will prevent, it will be a prevention to getting cavities. You don't go to the dentist and the dentist says, hey, every one of your teeth has cavities, and so because of that, you better begin the habit of brushing your teeth. Now, the dentist usually says, let me fix these. It's going to cost you $14 million to fix them. While you're paying that off, buy a toothbrush also and begin brushing your teeth. Now, as parents, you try and instill that habit very young. As soon as their first teeth come in, hey, let's start brushing your teeth to form this habit. Same with washing your hands uh, before you eat. You've been, you know, cleaning out sewage and you go to eat and you say, hey, maybe I should have washed my hands before, uh, you know, with the sewage on my hand because it's a good habit to do. So we teach, we try to instill these habits, these good positive habits during a time of normalness. Does that make sense? Negative habits, negative habits can also be formed during that time. Because there's not this stress or this anxiety. There's not this pressure from the outside uh, to, to cause us to, to prioritize which habits are going to be the most beneficial for the life that's desired of us. If you think about post-traumatic stress syndrome, which is a terrible thing in, in many folks, not just folks that are in the military or at war, but in many folks, uh, the stress that they've received over a variety of different things. If you think about the habits that are formed from that, the pressure, the stress that's causing you to, to do things that you normally wouldn't do. I'll give a real silly example here. When I'm in eighth grade, I had an accident with a table saw and it hurt my thumb. A blood squirting everywhere. I said blood because Mandy hates when I say that. Blood squirting everywhere. It looks like salsa and ketchup. And so, uh, so anyway, so I have to go to the doctor and, and uh, get it fixed and all these things. And for about two, two months, two and a half months, I walked around in the Texas A&M thumbs up gigamaggies stance here with my thumb like this. 
because my thumb was in a little cast for a little while, and then after the cast was removed, I was in the habit of keeping my thumb up like that. My dad wanted to break me of the habit, and so fathers, what do you do? You use discipline. You use force, because that's what dads are known for. So every time I had my thumb up, my dad would come by and thump it as hard as he could to remind me, hey, put your thumb down. We don't want you to be an Aggie, or whatever the case may be, okay? And so uh, so I got in this habit of keeping my thumb thumb up. I'd be sitting, in, you know, watching TV or baseball. My thumb would be up. I'd be sitting in the classroom, and I'd notice my thumb is up. I formed this habit because of the stress around me. Because of the stress around me, I formed somewhat of a silly of a silly bad habit. Now, stressful, let's talk about stressful times like war. Now, what are the types of habits that are formed? If you haven't been trained well, and you're in the midst of war, whatever war it may be, even if it's a new war, like uh, some of the wars that our, our military has been facing in our contemporary time, think about the habits that are formed from that. Who are they going to in time of need? What are they going to in time of uh, when they're when they're uh, behind the wire, inside the wire, and they want to calm down, they're wanting to uh, decompress or debrief themselves. What are the things that they're turning to? Where, what are the drinks that they're turning to, or the food, or the outside sources that are going to help them calm calm down? And they form those those habits. We see this a lot in law enforcement too. You know, they have a 12-hour shift where uh, every hour, every minute of their shift is a, a terrible time. And they begin this hyper-vigilance time where they're, where they're constantly on and they begin to form these habits. And so when they're off shift and they're trying to uh, go back to this normal level lifestyle, they're having a hard time dealing with those things because they haven't been trained or taught on how to rightfully handle those types of situations. And so because they have, they have not been taught how to handle those situations or instructed on how to handle those stressful times, they form these bad habits. Well, maybe I'll do these things. Maybe I'll drink this. Maybe I'll say these things. Maybe I'll watch these movies. Maybe I'll read these types of things. Maybe I'll, I'll look at these types of things in the hopes that I'll receive the relief that I am desiring and the comfort and the security that I am desiring. And you know what happens with those bad habits? And those are too dramatic. I'm giving you dramatic uh, habits that are formed. But those habits, those bad habits that we allow to shape us, not only do they begin to shape us, but then we become identified by those bad habits. Hey, there's that guy that never washes his hands. Hey, there's that guy that never brushes his teeth. Hey, there's that guy who always turns to that drink in time of need. The people of God in Malachi's time were doing similar things. They were having to be reminded of, you formed these habits, and though we may not say that they're bad like alcoholism, still it's not the habits that the Lord desires for you to be a part of. Paul Tripp says these habits are like train tracks. You begin to lay the train tracks down, and then you look and you're way off point. You're way off center. Your trajectory is going off in a direction that you don't even desire. Here, back a thousand miles backwards, you say, well, I started off fine, but at some point your habits and your train track led you in this direction. And so people like Malachi have to come in and recenter us and say, let's move some train tracks to put it back on center. Let's establish some new habits, some godly habits that are going to help us to live in obedience to the Lord. Let us uh, be responding to what God desires of us instead of self. It's interesting the way that Malachi starts out there in, in verse 1 of, of Malachi chapter 1. He begins with this. He says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That word oracle really means a burden. Here comes Malachi, this prophet from the Lord, 
risen or brought out, called out by the Lord with this word to speak to the people belonging to God. And when Malachi begins, he says, hey, here's an oracle. Here's a burden that's upon me that I'm now going to, because of the Lord's decree, share with you. A burden, not something to be carried around. Uh, when Mandy and I uh, began having kids, like Reese is our oldest, uh, you know, I, I got really good at holding Reese with my left arm so I could do all the fighting with my right arm because he's such a good-looking kid, right? And so then we had Ryan, it's the same thing. And I began carrying this, uh, this child in my, my left arm. And then we had foster kid and foster kid and babies and babies. And the same thing, I get really good at carrying the kid in my left arm so I can defend off, really, Brad, so I can keep fishing because you, you can do like this. With the kid in your arm here, okay? Those types. Of, so you're forming. It's a it's a habit. And now when I try and pick things up with my left shoulder, I notice what happened. The burden that I was carrying, all on one side, the weight over all these years, though they were tiny infant little baby boys or girls or whatever the case may be, this burden that I'm carrying is not the way that my shoulder was designed to continue to carry that burden all my life. And if we had to carry twins, Marty, I don't know how I would do it because I can only carry them in left, left arm. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to have to put them both here. We'll, we'll figure it out. Those habits that we form that over a length of time cause us issues. And that's what's happening with the people here. Malachi comes and says, I have this burden to share with you. The only way this burden is ever going to be lifted is for us to see who the Messiah is. When we recognize that all our hope is in the Messiah, the burden will be lifted. Malachi quickly points us to that. He begins with, yeah, this is a burden. It's a message from the Lord. But let me first point you to, let me first point you to the love that God has for you. Malachi brings this oracle, this burden to the people. He's been given this weight to share to the people. It's a burden, yet it's full of hope and relief. Most burdens don't come with relief. But the burden that Malachi is bringing to the people is not going to be a burden that's going to exhaust them or drown them or give them death. But in the, in the other hand, on the other hand, it's going to be a burden that relieves them, that brings them hope, that brings them peace, that sets them in the way everlasting. And we have to see this when we hear these words, when we hear these words from the Lord. And so we'll quickly go through verses 2 through 5 together. I want to make three points about God's continual covenantal love that he has for us. He begins in verse 2 with this decree or this oracle or these words from the Lord. And this particular first words come from God. It says this, I have loved you, says the Lord. He says this, he makes this statement right away. I have loved you. It's a continual, it's a love that's enduring, a love that's not stopping. It's a love from yesterday, it's a love today, it's a love tomorrow. It's this continual love. I have loved you, says the Lord. But these people belonging to the Lord, because they're full of question, they say this, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? This is the, the question or the statement, the dispute, and now God will, uh, he will, he will answer because he's a God of grace and mercy. He will answer the people's question. So I have loved you. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? You have to think real quickly here, just a as a reminder, who it is that's speaking. Who are these words coming from? As with all the prophets, the prophet is speaking on behalf of the one true Lord. Not just a bunch of little gods, not just some saying, but we have to see that this scripture 
the scripture that's telling the truth. The scripture is breathed out by God. We're trusting that these words are from God. That these scriptures are going to tell us the truth about human condition. It's going to tell us the truth about, about sin. It's also going to tell us the truth about God and about his love or other characteristics that we might learn about as we're reading these words from God. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Think about this question right now. Paul Tripp says this. He says, in counseling, we should always ask this question when somebody's suffering, when somebody's going through a trial, somebody's going through a persecution, somebody's, somebody's going through something traumatic. He asks the question, where is God right now? Where is he? In your normal life, where is God? Where is God in your midst, in the midst of suffering? Your answers to these questions will help you or are helping you shape your walk with the Lord. If you feel as if God is distant, far off, not to be in, uh, you know, in his presence, if you feel as God is not in the midst of your sorrow or your tragedy, if you feel like God's not in the midst of your blessedness or your normal time, these views, these answers to these questions are shaping your walk with the Lord. Scripture tells us the truth about our human condition. It tells us the truth about sin and then points us to our Redeemer, Jesus, to let us know that God is near, that he has loved us, that he loved us yesterday, he's loving us now, that he will continue to love us. And Malachi is doing the same thing. As we think about these things, he's doing the same thing. He's pointing out the sin of the people. He's pointing out their questions. He's pointing out the condition of their heart. He's pointing out where God is. And then in all of that, he points us to Jesus. So who is God? Who is the Lord? Is he worthy of being made famous? Is he worthy of being obedient to? Is he worthy of thinking about as much as possible, particularly this morning, is he worthy of thinking about how much he loves us? So he goes to answer. When the people say, how have you loved us? He, he begins to answer with a scenario, a real life scenario. Is not Esau Jacob's brother? declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, verse 3 says, but Esau I have hated. Now this is a really, really questionable verse. Most of us don't begin thinking about God's love, thinking about the love that God has for us. Most of us don't immediately go to the opposite of that, thinking that God may hate someone or something. We'll see this a couple times throughout the book of Malachi. These dramatic statements, these dramatic statements that the Lord is trying to get our attention, letting us recognize the things that he is against. In this case, for some reason, it seems as if his love is not being shown to Esau. Instead, his love is being shown to Jacob. For some reason, it's, it seems as if God loves Jacob, but on the other side, hates Esau. We'll see this in, in, uh, when we talk about the family and we talk about things like divorce or breaking covenantal vows. We, we see this Lord saying, I'm strongly against that. That's the way we put it in contemporary terms. I'm strongly against this. We, we are afraid to say that he may hate something. We have to wrap our minds around this. And I want to say this morning, I don't know that we can. We cannot understand completely the mind of the Lord. We can question and question and question. At some point, we're just going to have to trust that these are his words and that he is God, sovereign over all, and he knows what he's doing and trust fully in that, that he knows all things. I have laid waste his hill country and left his, his heritage to jackals of the desert. 
Verse 4 says, if Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. These don't seem like loving points. They seem like hateful, tearing down points. But the Lord is trying to prove to his people, to the people belonging to him, that he has loved them, that he has chosen them, that he he has chosen to make covenant with them, to make a contract with them, so that they may live in obedience to him, but also so that he may daily give them grace and mercy and forgiveness, and maybe in this particular case, uh, most importantly, that he may show them his love for them. Who is God? Who is the Lord? What are some characteristics of him? What, what, is, what, is, uh, what are the things that he's doing? Even in this particular case, as you wrestle with this, is this God, the God that we say is the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, that he's the Ancient of Days, that him and the Son are one, is he worthy of being made famous? I guarantee you that if you're uh, going to share the gospel, if you're going to share the good news about Jesus, you probably wouldn't use these words. You probably wouldn't begin by saying, hey, I want you to know that God loves you. And here's how I know that he loves you. Well, he loved Jacob and hated Esau. So so your name must be Jacob, right? You, maybe, maybe he loves you, whatever the case may be. It's probably not how you're going to start the conversation. We want to be good salesmen, right? And so we always uh, talk, talk about these um, great godly characteristics, the things that we think people are going to buy into more quickly. Uh, quickly than the things uh, that are or, uh, difficult to deal with. And this is one of those moments. This uh, God's continual covenantal love, this contract that he's made with his people, how do we handle this particular verse? Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 9. And how do we deal with this? He references this particular, uh, particular case, this particular scenario with Jacob and Esau. How do we deal with this? I think Malachi and the rest of the prophets, including uh, you know, folks of the New Testament, Paul and Peter, and, uh, they would point us to who God is. His characteristics, that we are not God, that He is God. And so because of that, we want to focus in on who He is, not on Esau, not on Jacob, but instead God. We focus in on Him. And so as we're seeing here, God says that I have loved you. He says that I I am God and I have loved you and I'm loving you with this continual type of love. Psalm 136 is the perfect uh, perfect scripture for this because it talks about this enduring love, a love that doesn't run out, a love that doesn't go away. The first three verses of Psalm 136 say this, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It goes on and on and on. Give thanks to the God of gods for his steadfast love endures forever. It goes on and on and on. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. It's continual. It goes on and on and on and on. It's hard for us to, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the Father's love. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around God's love, mostly because we don't have an earthly example of it. For most of us, we don't have someone in our life right now that's showing us a continual love. And if you do have that, hold on to that. Let that person point you to Jesus and say, your love is great. It seems so enduring. It seems so continual. Let me point point what I'm seeing in you and fix my eyes upon Jesus. Most of us have fathers who don't love well. Most of us have bad examples of love. Most of us have examples of love that runs out, that does not continue. And so Malachi, preaching to these people, tries to remind them that God has a love for them 
that will never run out. Maybe you haven't been loved well, and so you begin to question. You say, well, well, God says he loves me, but all my examples of love aren't so good. And so, so when I approach God and his love, I'm expecting him to give me something. I'm expecting him to prove his love to me in some way or some resource, some respect, some recognition. Because, you see, this is how I think I should be love. We, we approach God with a love me because of my actions type of love. Lord, love me. Like you say that you have loved me, and I, and I get that you're saying those things, but here's how I want you to love me. Love me because I'm doing these things. Love me because I'm good. Love me because I, I'm worthy of respect. Love me because, because I should be recognized for, for who I am. But that's not the gospel. So the gospel is that despite your actions, the Father does love you. Should I say that again, just in case? The gospel is this, that despite your actions, the Father does love you. It's against, it's anti, when we say love me because of my actions, it's anti-gospel. The gospel, and we should rest in this, is that the Father, despite all my actions, good or bad, He still loves me. We are reminded constantly by the church, by people in our life, by Scripture, by God's presence, by His grace, by His mercy, that He has a continual, enduring love that will never run out. Let me uh, pick up here in verse 5, the end of this little section. God's continual covenantal love. He says this, Your own eyes shall see this, and then you will say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. When we see the Lord's continual love for us, when the people that Malachi was speaking to so many years ago see the love that the Lord has for them, in that moment, when they see it with their own eyes, they will say, Great is the Lord beyond all measure, beyond the borders of Israel, beyond our security, beyond our walls built, beyond our comfort, beyond the temple, beyond everything, as far as we can see or further than that, great is the Lord. It's incomprehensible. We don't understand it. Your own eyes shall see these things, and then you will say, great is the Lord. So two things that I want to just end with this morning. When we talk about this covenant love that we have with the Father, this continual, this, this love that doesn't run out, and then this covenantal love, this contract love that he has for us, that he displayed for us and signed with his own blood, the blood of his Son, he's made with us this new covenant that we have through Jesus so that we may have a relationship with him despite who we are. When we think about this covenant that we have with the Lord, the covenant begins to fight against the question, yes, God, but how have you loved us? So, so in the midst of war, or suffering, or trials, or persecution, when we have these good habits formed, and our eyes begin to fixate upon God's covenant with us, and his love with us, in the midst of all those things, when it's foggy, or whatever the case may be, when our vision is blurred, we are reminded of the contract we have with the Father through the Son. And we see His grace and His mercy playing out. The covenant that we have with the Father through the Son aids in reminding us of what the Lord has done and promises to do. It reminds us that, yes, God has acted in a way of love, and He will today act in a way of love, and He will tomorrow act in a way of love. 
it reminds us, the contract, the covenant reminds us that my bad actions yesterday were forgiven and so were my good actions were forgiven. And my bad actions today, my bad habits today, and my good actions today, and my good habits today, they have nothing to do with my relationship with the Lord because I'm resting in I'm resting in the completed work of Jesus. And so I want all my life to be pointing to him. I mean think about Jesus in the garden as he's approaching as he's approaching his crucifixion. I mean how can Christ while sweating blood in the garden Rise and say, thy will be done. I mean, how can you? Maybe you go home and everything in your house is broken. Maybe you get a call or you get on Facebook or whatever, and every person in your family is evil. Maybe you go to work tomorrow and everything is in shambles. How can you, in those moments, how can you fix your eyes upon Jesus and say, thy will be done? How can you count those times as pure joy? How can you? Even in blessedness. How can you wake up and say, everything is right, and not take that upon yourself? What must you do? Hey, Lord, it seems like as if everything is right right now, but still I want your will to be done. For the joy, Jesus, this is, I feel like this is the author of Hebrews sets it, sets it up perfectly for us in Hebrews 12. Here's how Jesus, I think, was able to rise up in the garden, sweating blood, being able to say, thy will be done. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. How was he able to do that? Because his vision was fixed upon the Lord. His vision was fixed upon the covenant, the contract with the Lord. His vision was set upon the Father. And every day as as followers of Jesus, we put into action what he modeled for us. Rising up in the midst of sorrow. Rising up in the midst of blessedness and saying, God is the Lord, and my vision is fixed upon him and him alone. I mean, covenant helps us fix our vision upon the author and perfecter of our faith so that when trials come in various kinds, we can endure, so we can face those things. So when a blessed earthly earthly life happens full of temples and wall security, in the midst of comfort, we can still say, wow, the Lord has loved us. In fact, he is so great but he's beyond all this blessedness. He's greater than all of this. An author, long gone now, theologian from 1892, wrote these words. He's in England, and so uh, maybe if you've been there, you can, you can uh, be familiar with this. The very circumstance that ought to have made their memory indelible is a circumstance which causes the record to soon be obliterated. So God is saying, I have loved you. And they say, how have you loved us? Their memory went bad. And I know some of you say, I got a bad memory. Please, if you forget my name or anybody else's name, or you forget all your appointments that are happening this month or next month or years from now, please set your mind on Christ and at least remember every day, remember what Christ has done for you. The very circumstance that I'll, that I'll have made their memory indelible is a circumstance which causes the record soon to be obliterated. We become familiar with God's blessings, the people belonging to God, a hundred years of comfort. They become familiar with God's blessings, so familiar with it, so familiar with it, that they become uh, just used to it. Oh, this is the way it always is. They become familiar with God's blessings and we seem to have established some right in their succession. Well, if I do all these things, and this is the way I've been acting, I should be receiving all these 
blessings. We expect the sun to rise, the author says. We complain to one another if there be anything, if there, sorry, if there be anything like disappointment attending the circumstance of his rising. We expect the sun to rise up and we say, do you call this, from 1892, do you call this April? This isn't the way April's supposed to be. April's supposed to be different. Remember April from last year? It was so different. Why is April not acting the way that April should be acting? Do you call this April? Why? In April, we ought to have, we ought not to have such fog and darkness. How many of you have experienced that in a moment in your life saying, I've done all these things. Surely they're right. Surely I've done all these things correctly. Why isn't it going my way? I mean, this is April. We're supposed to have sun. Not fog and gloom and doom. Why in April we ought to not we we ought not have fog and darkness? Where is the sun? What right? What right have you to the sun? Complaining and pointing your finger. Oh, sun! Why didn't you rise when I told you to rise? Why didn't you do what I told you to do? Why are you being covered by these clouds? You're so much more powerful than these things. Why aren't you doing what I'm telling you to do? Why not, the author says, why not rather say, God be praised. Here is the sun. God might have kept back the light from a world that has forfeited every claim upon his complacency, yet here is the shining sun. Keep your gratitude green. When our focus is upon what Christ has done, his covenant with us, what he promises to do, his love, the author of uh, Ecclesiastes tells us, nope, Lamentations tells us, that his mercy is like new every morning. It's like new dew every morning. Not old dew that we're having to scoop up and keep till tomorrow, but it's a new freshness. We're keeping our memory green, recognizing, recognizing what God has done. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord, beyond the border of Israel. When our eyes are focused upon the author and perfecter of our, of our faith, when our eyes are focused upon the covenant that he has established for us on our behalf through his death and resurrection, through his authority, when our eyes are focused upon him, no matter what happens today or tomorrow, whether good or bad, when our eyes are focused upon him, our memory is set upon him. He is glorified in all of that. Habakkuk says this. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. This sounds like a terrible moment. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk recognized that no matter what the circumstance is, good or bad, he will focus his attention upon his God, the Lord of lords. And we are in a much better place. The author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the, he's the image of the Father. And so we get to look upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, his covenant that he has established for us. And we get to live life full of habits that bring God all the glory. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you.
for being a God who recognizes our lowly estate, who knows our needs, who hears our complaints, sees our complacency, hears our questions, and yet loves us the same. God, in our world, we've experienced so many times people who have a conditional love for us, and so we often think that you have a conditional love for us. God, let us hear the gospel message that despite who I am, despite my sin, you love me. And then with that, God, let me see in my unworthiness, me and the rest in the room this morning, recognize how worthy you are to live for every bit of our life. God, when we, when we question your love for us, God, let our eyes be set upon your son Jesus and the covenant we have in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'll sing a response.